As always, a huge thank you to Starboard, who are once again this season's main sponsors. Starboard has a history of innovation across water sports, starting in 1994 by revolutionising the design of windsurf boards. And they've brought that bang up to date recently, bringing foil windsurfing onto the Olympic stage with their IQ foil package. Starboard got behind stand-up paddleboarding in a huge way in the early days and continued to lead the industry to reduce their environmental impact. Their focus on innovation brought them seven world champions at the ICF Worlds last year, and all of them were using their Lima paddle range. They continue to improve and innovate their boards and their paddles for all abilities across all flavours of the sport, including adventure. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website, which is linked to in the show notes. Welcome to the SUPFM podcast with me, Simon Hutchinson. Every week, I chat with interesting people from the SUP world or to people who can help us, the paddlers of the SUP tribe, to improve and to maximise our own experiences and our love of both the sport and the water. Every episode is designed to inspire or to help you get a deeper immersion into the sport through my conversations with leading athletes, scientists, explorers, TED speakers and New York Times best-selling authors. And not forgetting some of the many insanely inspiring distance paddlers we've routinely had on the show. This week, I speak to the endurance legend Bart Desvart from his yacht in the Caribbean. Bart is one of those names which went down first when we prepared our first season guest list and he's been a hugely busy man over many years so I was really thrilled to finally get to speak to him. He's done some pretty extreme things in his time particularly the crossings which we'll discuss in this chat and my impression was that he's very similar in a lot of ways to Chris Burtish if you've listened to episode 77 in that his ability to do unbelievable things beyond us mere mortals and to manage all the risks involved is the result of the years he spent on the water, gaining experience on lots of different craft. So here is the legend who is Bart Desvart. Hey Bart, welcome to Sup FM. Hi Simon, glad to be here. Well, it's a great honour to have you on and as I prepared for this episode... And because of the sheer number of achievements and adventures you've had over the years, it was probably more challenging to decide what to leave out rather than what to discuss. And you're one of those small group of people within um, stand-up paddling who's been a real trailblazer for the sport and really pushed the horizons and the perception of what's possible. So it's great to have you on. And you don't really need much of an introduction to, to most of our listeners. You're a very familiar character on the scene, but I am aware that a lot of our listeners may have joined the sport recently. And for their benefit, you are the definitive endurance specialist across, you know, I've, I've cut it into sort of three main areas of paddling. So there's your explorer traveler experiences where you've been to a number of locations worldwide, which aren't traditionally seen as sub destinations like Nepal and Zambia and, and Greenland. Then we've got your, your multi-day crossings from land masses to land masses that hadn't been done before by SUP. So French Polynesia, the Hawaiian Islands chain and the North Sea, probably the least glamorous of those crossings, I would say. And then what you're also very well known for is as an ultra endurance 
racer and you've won the biggest distance race events in some cases on multiple occasions over a stack of years and uh, I wasn't sh- quite sure where to stick this one in here but you're also a past uh, record holder for the 24 hour distance for SUP so quite a, a palmares of achievements there but you've also played an important role with the starboard team helping to develop boards for exploration and distance and you're also the team manager for the dream team which is starboard's stable of athletes so there's a huge amount of stuff to talk about hopefully we can cover some or at least most of that in our in our chat today but just to start, if we could bring it back to the origins, what was the young Bart like when you were growing up in the Netherlands and how did your connection with water develop? Uh, that was very easy because um, I grew up on a houseboat and uh, my parents had a sailing school and which turned later into a sailing and windsurfing school. And I was just out on the water most of the time, windsurfing most of the time, um, uh, even before school sometimes, really early um so yeah it, i grew up into water sport my dad uh later um started the windsurfing school then they started a, a charter business with a sailing boat going to mediterranean caribbean uh, mostly with clients but we always took a, a yeah some time off in the winter where we went ourselves so basically grew up near the water most of the time and uh, obviously a really solid sailing background and windsurfing background. So back in those early days, did you race or did you just enjoy spending time on the water? Where did, where did that sort of competitive element come from? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I always had the competitive element. I did like, you know, some triathlons, um, some running or, or bike events. Um, I always liked competitiveness. And later I joined a, a windsurf club. We did races. Um, as a really young kid, I always, already wanted to windsurf from South America to North America. And always worked on that plan, but I was a kid back then and, and didn't knew probably what it was really like. And, but I always, always had that, that drive to, to explore and, and do like crossings or things like that. Things that, you know, like mountains which haven't been climbed. Same with water, the things which haven't been done yet. And you studied tourism in the Netherlands. And I know that even before finishing that course, uh, course you were off and, and abroad. And then you seem to be sort of forever traveling and, uh, and living abroad. Just tell us how, how that whole thing happened. Well, I, I'll make the short version, otherwise... <laughs> I I was in a a school for tourism and we had to do an an internship. I ended up being in uh, Greece. I heard that some of the the company I was working with were selling uh, half of the ownership of a windsurf center in Venezuela. Um, So I jumped on that. Back then I was probably around 25 and that's where I met my wife and we ran that for seven years then went to Hawaii whereabouts was that in Venezuela because I've got some sort of family links my dad was born out there and I know at the moment it's not the best place to really run a tourist business as such but it's a beautiful country isn't it yeah that it's especially where we were was was just great for windsurfing um it was Isla Magrita Mm -hmm. 
and um, just eight months of the year there was wind and it was easy for clients it was a great place to run a windsurfing school but there was a lot of corruption um, criminality so it's not the best place and when we left it from there on it went down uh, Chavez came in the president who changed things around and mostly not for the best and mm-hmm. so yeah we we, uh, we had a good time there, but it was time to go. We went to Hawaii, to Maui, started a windsurf shop there, rental, uh, stand-up. And then in 2005, we we were not sure if we wanted to stay or not because our visa ran out. And we had a five-year visa. And then we went back to Holland, bought a boat, and like an older boat, 30-year-old boat. And we, we sailed around the world. And halfway around, we went back during the hurricane season to Maui. And uh, then I got my first stand-up paddleboard. So, so tell, us a, tell us a story about that, because you did have some exposure to stand-up paddling before, didn't you, I think? I think you saw Laird doing his thing. Yes, yeah. The, just before we left, in the, the, I think we left in May in 2005, and just in the months leading up to that, uh, March, April, um, I saw him. I saw him stand up paddling in in Hokipa. And what amazed me is that he, he was way out, and he took a wave and he rode it in all the way to the beach, which um, is is almost impossible for any other surfer. But with the, he had a really long stand up paddle board, so he just paddled in between and he made it all the way in. I was like, oh, that that looks kind of cool, but it, it looked very much as an outlier sport. Like, he was the only one I saw. I think it was with Dave Kalama back then. Mm-hmm. And those were the only ones I've, I had ever seen. And so when we came back in 2000, the winter of 2006, seven, uh, suddenly a lot of people were doing it. And I did my first downwinder. Um, Sven had a few boards for the first production starboard boards. And I ended up getting one of the, the, the models, which are the, the prototypes we didn't make it and was left on Maui. And somebody broke it in three pieces on a big wave day. And I took it on the boat, put it back together and I had a stand up pedal board on board. And, uh, which was great because from then on we were in Fiji in Indonesia in a lot of places where, Sometimes there's really tiny surf, and I found out that with the stand-up pedal boards, it was easier to get to the surf and, and used in almost any kind of condition, from really big to really small. So it sounds like it wasn't necessarily love at, at first sight for stand-up paddle boarding when you first saw it. You know, you just saw it as a, a, as a fringe activity. Yeah, that I, because I haven't, hadn't tried it, but it, it, it sparked my interest because it looked so accessible and it looked like you can use it in, in so many different conditions because he, he took a big wave outside and it still worked on a tiny wave on the inside. And that, that looked just really great. And which I still think is one of the best things about stand up paddling, pedal boarding in the waves that uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's easy to get to any break, um, even if it's a little further pedal. And you can use it in giant waves and you can use it in tiny waves and, it always works and yeah 
it's, it's accessible. And you used it quite a lot, didn't you, on your three-year voyage? You even sort of used it a bit as a tender when you were sort of going between the shore and the and the boat, didn't you? Yeah, I always say that that it's a great way to to meet the locals um, mm. because there are some places where um, life is very simple, like Vanuatu, the Solomon Islands, and Papua New Guinea. And when you come there with your dinghy, because often it's 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 a little further from a shore, so often you 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 have an outboard on your dinghy, and when you come like that, you really feel like you're you're different because um, you you come with other means than what they use. But if you come with a stand-up paddleboard, it it feels like you're on the same level because they have the uh, the dugout canoes. You come with your paddleboard, and especially then my the my board I had wasn't very fancy looking and the pedal I made out of a, a wooden stick and a, and a broken windsurf mast and so it, it yeah it, it they always had respect for that so um, I, I like that part of it yeah and it's that accessibility and engaging with people and what also stood out to me looking at some of your videos where you visited uh, Nepal and, and Zambia and when you're engaging with the local people you know, they love to have a go as well. And they're very curious about what it is that you're actually standing up on. And I know when I started, you know, quite a few years after you, but still it was early enough that you're pumping up your inflatable on the shore and you get lots of people coming up to you asking you what you're doing. So it really does help, I guess, to engage when you're out um, exploring as well. Oh, yes, yes. It, it's it, Especially the trips where we were only on a board, the, the, the most recent trip, I uh, was with Trevor. Uh, we did in Vanuatu and we went basically for a week between islands. Mm-hmm. And they, yeah, they, 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 you know, they come with food. They feel sorry for even that you, that you pedaling all the way between those islands. And so it, it's, it's, it's very easy to get in contact with, with locals and they see you differently. So I, I really like that aspect of it. Brilliant. So let's talk a little bit about um, your racing career and you've got a pretty stunning selection of race achievements so between 2010 and 16 you had 40 international top five finishes you've won the 11 cities race four times you've won the Yukon 1000 you've won the Yukon River Quest multiple times Missouri Great Glen I could go on but one of the races that I haven't heard you getting asked about is the Chatterjack in the US and although it's only 31 miles and probably something that you would class as a sprint distance, you know, bearing in mind your your distances, um, you had a pretty classic rivalry with Larry Kane on that one. And yeah. it sounds like the years that you went head to head on that was like two heavyweights taking lumps out of each other. I think the last one was in 2017 and that was a classic finish, but you almost had him in, on that one, didn't you? Yeah, the, there were years where, where Larry was just the stronger one. Uh, at that distance and um, I think most of the years and I was just the, the second strongest in that field and and it was pretty clear but the last year and um, even by his own saying it he felt that I was stronger and we were very close and he couldn't get away during the race which sometimes in the end he could and that year um I couldn't get away either, and so it was going to come down to the to the finish. And I knew he was not very strong at um, at turns. And uh, there's just basically it's a long 31 mile race, and then there's basically one turn, and then there's a tiny little sprint of 100 meters. So I was hoping for that turn, 
and yeah. it was very close and he had a kind of a clumsy turn uh but still he managed to to be a nose length ahead or something and but it was a, it was a great race and i'm actually happy because it there was the one race he always won and and like i had my races which i always wanted to win this was his race he always wanted to win so i was also kind of happy for him that he he did well always there so Chris Parker in the Sup Racer film Chased by the Midnight Sun, you, in that film you said that you're driven by doing what hasn't been done and what's difficult. And I know that early on even getting to compete in the Yukon River Quest was a challenge because although it was an existing paddle race, you had to push barriers together with some others to get Sup included in there. Can you just explain a bit about the race and how it works and the, the work you and others put in to get Sup included? Yeah, it's a, it's a very hot uh, theme because it, it's it's going on right now. And um, uh, apart from being on the boat here, which is great, it's the only thing in the whole year I I, I do miss uh, miss out on. And it's a race where it the it, it's a lot of endurance, but it's also very mental because you're mostly by yourself. Um, with maybe under 100 competitors, but the race is so long, it's 750 kilometers, that often you're just by yourself or you see in the far distance, you see someone, it spreads out uh, very much. And people come in between the fastest teams come in at like 46 hours, the slowest at uh, like Chris Parker at 83 hours. And so it, it, it spreads out and it's it's mostly about um, a combination of of a long pedal, eating right, clothing right. And because people, the last race I did, people pulled out because of heat exhaustion and people pulled out because they had hypothermia. Uh, it was hot during the day and it was cold during the night. Mm. And if you, in the night, if you if you f- would fall in the water, don't change your clothes right away. It, 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 yeah, it comes really quick. I, I just I just like the the... Well, survival is a big word, but it, it's 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 an adventure at the same time as a race. And right. you have to do everything right to do well. And I, I kind of had this one queued up, but would you classify, I guess you would classify yourself as an explorer who likes to race rather than a racer who likes to explore. Would that be right? Uh, more, more so now than in the beginning, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah, especially, you know, the older you get, the slower you get. So you become more the explorer and less of the racer. Um, I'm 52 right now. And uh, I I noticed the last years that, um, especially the sprinting part, uh, your muscles, they change to endurance more. Uh, the, the years start to be harder on sprinting. And yeah, the endurance part still works pretty well. Mm. Um and especially because it's it's more a mental thing. It's how you go through because everybody's having muscle pain and and it's just hard after twelve hours of pedaling knowing that you still have to do another forty. And that's just mental, I think. And that's that's something which um, the older races mostly do better at than younger races. So that first river quest that you took part in, it wasn't open to sup at that point, was it? You had to push to get included. No, it was. It was. We we wrote. There were two or three of us who wrote. Maybe the the one or two years before that already, and they didn't accept. And that year, suddenly they said, "Well, we're willing to try it with ten stand-up paddlers, 
Mm-hmm. And when we arrived, we felt that, you know, they accepted us in the race, but they they didn't accept us as a finisher. They they kind of knew we're not going to finish, but they, they were willing to try. Mm-hmm. And especially the first part of the race, um, the, it's about 24 hours to the first, first stop. You have to stop there for um, more or less, um, for a few hours. And... Um, they saw that you know, at least that's you know it, it's kind of safe because if if it doesn't work out, we just pull off the water there and they they don't do the rest of the race. But they noticed suddenly that <clears throat> first of all we were very fit when we arrived at that stop mm-hmm. because if um, a canoe paddler or a kayak paddler sits in a canoe for twenty four hours, they come out of the boat um, kind of hard. It's it, they're very stiff. They can hardly mm-hmm. walk. Yeah. We just jumped off our board and we were up and running. Mm. Uh, that's what they noticed. And they noticed that that uh, most of us came in a, in a really good time even. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly they, from there on, they, 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 the, the race director told me later, said like, oh, it, from then on, we saw like, oh, they're, they're really up to the task and it, it, this might work. And then my goal was then to finish within the 55 hours, which back then was the only um, time you could get prize money mm-hmm. and although we're we were not supposed to get prize money um because we were in yeah just a experimental um uh, class um they even they gave me prize money because i made it under 55 hours and they they yeah they, they the first time was great because still uh, most of the pedalists they saw us in the beginning and there's about 500 altogether or 400, which makes a big, big hole with people. And uh, when we came up, they we get a standing ovation. And they you could see that most of uh, most of them didn't believe we were going to make it. And then when we made it, they, they kind of like, oh, this is kind of cool. And it was a great, great moment for us, for the sport and for, for the ones who took part, I think. Oh, yeah. It's always pleasing to prove people wrong or at least to... Um to leap over their expectations. And I mentioned the the film that Chris Parker put together, Chased by the Midnight Sun. It's still available on YouTube and it's a great watch. And it's really interesting because it allows us to experience the Yukon quest through his eyes. And it gives a real taste of the sort of physical and mental journeys that he had to go through and you had to go through in order to get through to the finish. But when you're building up to a distance event like that, what sort of preparations do you have to make physically and mentally to get ready for it? Or do you just rely on your experience and your engine and all the hundreds of thousands of paddle strokes you've put in the bag? Yeah, you do have to do um, train. Like when I, a race like that comes up, I pedal every day, mostly for 45 minutes to an hour and a half. And mm-hmm. then I try to do at least one longer one every every week, uh, which doesn't always work out. Like, most people, they always train less than they plan to, but I try to be at least consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, so your hands, they, you know, they, they you don't get blisters right away. Your body is used to the pedaling. And that's that's one part of preparation then for me the mental part is mostly knowing that you're prepared if you know that you have everything under control your your physical ability your 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 food all the things you have to bring you try them on the board 
Um, you 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 pedaled in rough weather against the wind, with the wind, and all those things. If you try them all out before a race with the gear you're gonna race with, mm-hmm. then you feel prepared. And when you feel prepared, you feel mentally strong. And the more races you do, the more confidence you have of your abilities and it becomes easier and easier. And what mental games do you play on the board? Because as you said, you're out there for hours and hours, you're on your own. What do you focus on? Do you plug into music? Do you follow heart rate thresholds? Do you set yourself little targets? How do you get over those thresholds and just keep on going? Yeah, I've tried the music thing and on crossings. And, and mostly if it was a, like a five-day crossing, I had it for half a day and then it, it doesn't really work for me. Mm. Um, uh, like I, I never do heart rates. Uh, mm-hmm. With training, I sometimes, uh, but during the race, not really. I, I, I like to go by, by how I feel. It's, sometimes it's better. I like to have a, a GPS speed mm-hmm. um, measurement on the board, which I can always see. In most races, that's really helpful because you see um, if, you're, if you're slowing down. Uh, but in a race like the Yukon, you can see where the faster current is. Right. Uh, because yeah, you cannot see how, how well you're doing because the current is is one to let's say six kilometers or something. And but sometimes you 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 learn really quick where the faster current is on a on a river like that if you have GPS. So I don't I don't have a lot of things. I focus on on the map. I always know exactly where I am. And mm-hmm. you're always in your head calculating, looking how far it is. When should I eat? How do I plan this? When I get to the other side, how do I do this? Mm-hmm. And well, so it sounds sounds a bit like a a mindfulness retreat and uh, lots of pa- lots of planning uh, on the hoof as as well. And and how do you deal with adversity? Because you might must have had those days where you've got a relentless headwind that you're battling for for hours and hours. How do you keep your your morale going? Or, or is or have you had that much experience of those situations that you just know you're going to overcome it? Yeah, it, it's 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 a weird thing. It's just if you want it enough, you just battle through it. I, I remember the 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 first crossing I did back when I hadn't done much at all uh, from Hawaii from uh, Big Island to Kauai, which was five days. And the first night. I started in the night because it looked like the next morning was going to be windy and the, the wind's from the side and there's, there's a lot of uh, current. Um, so I thought if I want to make this crossing, I have to start with at least the first part with a uh, lighter wind. Uh, otherwise, you, you're pedaling basically 12 hours with uh, a strong side wind and side current, um, which everybody knows it's, it's not nice for half an hour, an hour, but... 12 hours would be a little much for the beginning of a crossing like that. And so I started at 8 o'clock in the evening, and it, it was just windy already. It was super dark because there was no, the moon was not out yet, and there was a new moon coming later. And um, it was choppy. I couldn't even stand on the board. Um, and the first 5 or 10 minutes, I fell off a couple of times, decided I have to go on my knees before to get out of the chop or at least when the current slows down or I can see a little better. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was seasick. 
um, basically everything <laughs> to make life hard happened. And but I said to myself, well, you wanted this, so if you wanna, if you want this, you have to keep going. And the the finish line somehow always seems very attractive. Mm. I know the feeling, what it's like to finish after something really hard, which is a just a super nice feeling. And the harder it is, the better the finish is. So sometimes I even enjoy that. No, not enjoy is a bad word, but I I welcome it. And um, just because I know the, the, the finish is so much sweeter. This is the SupFM podcast with my guest, Bart Desfart, and we will be right back. As always, a huge thank you to Starboard, who are once again this season's main sponsors. Starboard has a history of innovation across water sports, starting in 1994 by revolutionising the design of windsurf boards. And they've brought that bang up to date recently, bringing foil windsurfing onto the Olympic stage with their IQ foil package. Starboard got behind stand-up paddleboarding in a huge way in the early days and continued to lead the industry to reduce their environmental impact. Their focus on innovation brought them seven world champions at the ICF Worlds last year, and all of them were using their Lima paddle range. They continue to improve and innovate their boards and their paddles for all abilities across all flavours of the sport, including adventure. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website, which is linked to in the show notes. And now for the rest of my conversation with Bart Desvart. So in terms of the most difficult mental challenges that you had to deal with when you're on the board, the need to sleep, when you're completely exhausted, um, when things aren't going your way, do you, do you think that you find that easier to manage now because you, you've had them before and you've, you've got through them? Because I, I don't think there are too many situations you haven't come across before and successfully managed. Yeah, it never went wrong, really, um, so far. But, um, yeah, it, it's, it, you know, if the, one of the mental preparations is also trying to go through all kinds of scenarios, what can go wrong and what's your, what's your plan uh, when mm-hmm. that happens. And for instance, when I did the crossing, which was one of the harder crossings, although it didn't seem like, but from um, England to Holland, um, it was likely that I would get wind from the wrong direction and I would end up in Belgium or um, in England or in places which I didn't plan to go. So I, I, I looked at all the options where what would happen mm-hmm. if I have to go down more or up more or uh, so that that helps. Just going through the scenarios, seeing what could happen, and so far I never had one bad one enough that that I needed help from outside. Um, and I always there was one of my biggest fear not the having help from the outside, but what it would do to the sport. Especially in the beginning, I didn't want to mm-hmm. be the one showing that stand up was actually dangerous or stupid to do something like that. So. I was very conscious about that. And it's actually something that came out in my conversation with Chris Burtish as well. It's about spending time on the water and, and running through all of those planning scenarios to work out if this happens, then I do that. And, you know, that shows that it's not just the, the physical preparation. It's all the planning behind it. I think the people who place themselves in the worst situations are the ones who just think, well, no pain, no gain. I'll just go out there and, and do it and haven't done that preparation. I know certainly in the UK, we have a lot of 
rescues every year from the RNLI as a result of people going out and just not considering or even being aware of the, the differences between the conditions. So, yeah, that, that's that's really important. So um, just as we sort of continue through the, the racing career, and I'm really interested to find out about your approach because clearly it's it's been hugely successful over the years. What are your feelings in terms of your own personal paddle technique? Because clearly it makes a huge difference when you're, you're turning over your paddle thousands of times. Is your paddle technique something that you're, you're happy with? Have you done any work on it? Is it natural? Do you, do you focus on it when you're particularly exhausted to make sure your form's right? How does that sort of tie in? And um, and have you ever been injured as a result of sort of poor paddle technique or, or anything like that? Yeah, when I when we started, I paddled a lot with Connor. We we trained together and mm-hmm. we pushed each other a lot, and, uh, and so the the pedal technique came kind of natural. We we didn't focus on it in the beginning because there was nothing really to focus on. We we it, we started when it when pedaling racing started basically, and um, what changed, especially for Connor, is that the pedal length. And for me, kind of too, but I still pedal with longer pedals than most people. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, because it, it, it makes a difference what kind of races you do. For sprints, you need short pedals. For long distance, you need longer because you cannot be bent over that deep for 24 hours or longer. And I do notice when I focus on technique, when I'm tired, um, I actually gain some. Because sometimes when you're tired, you start to be a little floppy with your paddling. Mm-hmm. And if you focus again on your technique, it, it, it's, it's better. And focusing, I mean, just um, reaching, putting, um, um, yeah, just fo- focus on a clean, a clean pedal stroke. Mm-hmm. I do pedal a little further behind my feet than some people do, also because of the pedal length, I think. And uh, which I think is fine. Uh, some racers in the beginning said that it has to be, you have to stop right at your feet and come out of the water, but I don't believe in that. And, and I do always have a long pedal because I know I'm really comfortable pedaling um, um, when you hold it a little lower, uh, mm-hmm. when you choke it, the choke stroke. Um, so, um, yeah, it, 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 it did change and I do do every now and then focus on it, but um, yeah, well, I don't think anyone could paddle, uh, could, um, could question your paddle style, bearing in mind the amount of, uh, of strokes that you've put in and your performance. And, and what about the, the paddle blade itself? Because back when I started, there were huge, great paddle blades. How, how's that sort of, developed with you do you have a preference in terms of your paddle do you have one that you sort of try and apply in, in all circumstances i mean we've all got our favorites haven't we yeah we do we, i like a racing pedal and i like them somewhere in the medium range mm-hmm. um it, it was very big in the beginning then we went all smaller probably a little too far and then we went back to the middle mm-hmm. and now it depends a lot on your 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 ability, your size. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're if you're not a very strong pedaler, sometimes it's nice to have a small blade so you can do a little faster strokes with less force. And uh, for me, it was always when you when you when you have pain in your back, you have to go a little longer with your pedal length 
and when you have pain in your shoulder you go a little shorter um and for it's personal for everyone so there's no there's no you know golden grill um mm. not if you say it like that but yeah there's no there's not the best way it, it's personal so, so just coming back to Yukon, um, we chatted to Ike France back in 2015, I think before you did the Yukon 1000, and uh, he was your partner when you won it in 2018. And one of the key differences between the Quest and the uh, the 1000 is, is the distance, but you also have to complete it as a team, and I guess that brings its own challenges. Could you just talk about the format of that um, Yukon 1000 race and and how you can develop a partnership in that extreme environment? Because basically you're doing 17, 18 hours of paddling per day, every day for for eight days. How do you manage to harmonize your relationship on on something that extreme? Yeah, I actually thought about that the last couple of days because we have a friend paddling in the Yukon River Quest right now. and And... Uh, we told her to hook up with other paddlers um, just for our own mental strength and, and safety. Uh, but it's hard because you, um, if you want to pedal with someone, you basically do a commitment that you pedal together. But there's there's times when you think like, oh, I'm, I'm way stronger. I want to pedal away, make sure that I'm, I'm going to finish in time. And there's there are times the other way around. And, I, I've, I normally don't like that feeling. I like to, when I feel good, I want to go. And when I'm not too good, I'll see how I manage. Um, I, I might pedal with other people, but I, I still want to have the ability to stop or go faster if I want to, you know, if you need a break or go faster if you want to go faster. But with Ike, it was a little different because the race is like that. Everybody has to stick together. It's always two people in the team. And Ike was the ideal partner. Um, and we made a few basic rules that we said that we're not going to, you know, if one is not so strong, we're not going to pedal in front of him half a board length, with, which I normally don't like much because it gives the feeling to the other person that is, uh, he's always a little too slow. Uh, we, we didn't do that. We said if, if one is not feeling good, um, Either we tow in, which we in the end we never did, or we just gonna slow down and pedal together. We we mm-hmm. adapt to the to the slower pedaler, basically. And the the basic task of putting up your tent and making food and things like that, we divided before we started, mm-hmm. which worked out great. And we had a very similar speed. So in the end it was a um a great partnership. It it worked out perfectly. Uh, which wasn't the case for all teams we saw later. Yeah, no, I can imagine, particularly in those later stages when uh, when the, the exhaustion takes over. You only had six hours, I think, which was sort of mandatory stopping time. So you had a lot to do during that period, get your tents up. You know, potentially there would be some uh, hostile wildlife around there as well. Hopefully you didn't uh, get any traces of bears when you were camping. Yeah, we had traces of bears. Um Sometimes we even uh, went to the beach to set up our tent and decided not to, to put up our tent there because there were too many tracks and too many fresh tracks. Uh, there was a team who actually saw tracks, went to another place, put up the tent where they didn't see any tracks. The more, next morning they woke up and there were a lot of tracks just 
around the tent. Wow. <laughs> so, they're like, ooh, they were here. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, the, it, 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 it's part of it, but it's, it's not as dangerous as it sounds. Um, as long as you keep the food away from your tent. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you see a kid, you know, kid bears, you, you yeah, get in the you opposite wanna, direction. Yeah. You go somewhere else. So it was, it, it, it's okay, but it, it, it makes it, uh, yes, yeah, a new dimension in, in, in adventure and in racing mm-hmm. because of it. Um, okay. So, so let, let's talk a little bit about, uh, another one of the, the classic races that you're you're known for, the 11 cities, and you're a, a full-time winner in your home country. You competed in the first one in 2009, and up to 2019, you had finished it 13 times during that 10-year period. And, you know, even with my poor arithmetic skills, um, it tells me that in some years you did a, a double finish, both the stage race and the non-stop. So I guess my first question uh, from that is is why? That's incredible. Yeah, same 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 answer. It just just because it's possible, I want to show that it's it, that it's that you can do that. I think the first time I did the double, um, there was only one person who did who decided to do that too. Mm-hmm. And now there's more who see the challenge in that. And it's actually nice because if you do the first one, it's always non-stop first. Mm-hmm. Then you basically ask a lot from your body. And then the five day after, you're just going to see what happens. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it works out really well, mm-hmm. most of the time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes uh, you, you, you feel sore and you just take it um, as a as a tour. Yeah. Uh, but most, you know, most of the time you're so competitive that you still want to do really well. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I actually you, you enjoy it a little more the five days, mm-hmm. um, but you already have done the other one. You really feel that you accomplished something. It, it's just a, it, it's a, it's the only race which feels like the Tour de France. And I, yeah. I know I've said that a couple of times, but it, it, it's. It's um, it's a little more about team, and it's a little like cooperation, and it's a little more uh, because every day is a stage, mm-hmm. um, and it's a com- camaraderie on board in the evenings, and so I, I really enjoyed that that race always, and I, I plan to go this year again. Incredible, and and it was quite a bit of vision um, by Amory Reitman who who pulled that race together and, and you were there in the first race in 2009 as well. And you had to get an invite, I think for that. Is that, is that how it worked out? Yes. She, she told, I, I heard about that race and I actually told her like, I want to do that race. But uh, when I told her she hadn't heard of me, um, I hadn't accomplished anything in pedaling. So she basically thought without saying it, like why? Why should I invite you? Yeah. And I felt that, and I see because she didn't invite me right away. And then I saw I just pedaled around Maui, and I showed that that I'm into this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I pedaled around Maui, Maui in three days, and then she invited me right away. And and I knew Anne Marie just a little from uh, a long time before that, from the windsurfing eleven city. Mm-hmm. 
we we basically I did it twice, and the first time I did it, she was fourteen and I was eighteen, mm-hmm. and um, we stopped at the same time. If you if you couldn't make the race in a certain time, you had to stop, and um, I think that time ninety percent had to stop the race and only ten percent finished, and. And I, I remember that we, we had to get off the board exactly at the same place after 36 hours of windsurfing. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's quite something, isn't it? Because, yeah, it's up and back, isn't it? It's uh, it's quite a route. And and in terms of the strategic approach to, it, say, the stage race, you know, is it is it just just literally beat the person next to you? Um, what, are, what are the tactics? Do you bury yourself at every day do you try and go for negative splits is it a battle just against yourself what's your approach to the, the stage race um i always most people always think like oh it's a long race you don't win it at the beginning but i took it differently i always thought like if you if you want to win you have to actually go really hard at the beginning mm-hmm. um so the years i was really strong i just i could pedal away from the rest and i could gain on the first day, five, six minutes. And just like a Tour de France, when you have those minutes, mm-hmm. then the next stage is you basically just have to stay with the group and you're good. And so the strong years, that's what I did. The, mm-hmm. the not so strong years, it, it was about seconds. There were years, I think, where I won with um, with 45 seconds um, to, the, to the second person after 27 hours or 24 hours of pedaling. And it was just, basically pedaling together and then um the finish line was was where you could make the difference and you just had to come out on top every time and so there were years i just won the sprints basically every race mm-hmm. and it helped that i knew the course and yeah somehow i, I always had a good good uh, sprint in the end and because people who can sprint mostly sprint in in the short run but a sprint mm-hmm. after five hours of pedaling is, is just a different kind of sprint. It's it's mostly long. And like the Tour de France has its mountains, and that one tends to sort of set out the, the time differences between the riders. Obviously, in the 11 cities, you've got the headwinds, and you've already mentioned, you know, how you experience those um, during the windsurf. How do you, how do you prefer? How do you prepare for managing headwinds? Is it just exposure and just getting used to, to that hard paddling? Yeah, I believe in the first years, I was one of the few who who were, was pedaling into the wind in mm-hmm. training, uh, which helped a lot. And so I, in Maui, I basically went up and down a, a stretch, and it was always headwind first, and then a, par, a piece downwind. And so, if I was lucky, the headwinds were my friend when it was a race with headwinds. Mm-hmm. Later people start to realize you have to practice in all kinds of conditions and not just when it's nice. Um, so then I lost that, that, um, yeah, little extra, but it, it, it's basically the same. If you, if you pedal in all kinds of conditions with, with all kinds of gear, um, you feel more comfortable and you know what to do and you know how to suffer through a side wind of half an hour or a two wind upwind, um, pedal. And it, it's a technique actually, Going upwind is a technique. It's not mm-hmm. just um, mind over manner. 
And and in terms of nutrition, and I'm thinking both about sort of Yukon and the Eleven Cities. What's your approach to that? Because uh, gels can get very boring in a very short amount of time. What did you use to refuel? Yeah, the gels in the beginning, I only used them for basically the last hour or half an hour or just before the sprint. Mm-hmm. And if it worked or not, but mentally it always worked. Um, but gels and especially the the, the sweeter itonic um, uh, drinks, they mm-hmm. they uh, they, they don't work on my stomach if the race is longer than let's say five, six, seven hours, and and I will always use um, it's it's a it's called Perpetuum. It's a hammer nutrition product, but there are other products like it, and it it's basically liquid food. I call it, mm-hmm. and it, it's pretty tasteless. And the good thing is you can drink it all day long. And even days long, and I take it in like a half dose of what's normal, mm-hmm. and I alternate with water, and I drink this basically non non stop. I, I use this for the whole race, no matter how long the race is. Mm-hmm. And if you combine it with solid food every hour, and with enough drinking, then your base is so good that you never have the feeling that you 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 bonk that. Yeah, just super low on energy. For me, it always has worked really well. And and this is where practicing out there on the water is so important. Your nutrition, your kit, um, you know, trying to recreate the situation, or ideally even worse, in order to make sure you don't have any surprises. Because I've done a bit of distance running in in my time, and uh, and various ones of my friends have tried out a you know, a, a, a can of isotonic drink or something on the road that they hadn't tested before. And it's had some um, really unfortunate uh, results for them. So uh, it's important to make sure that you test everything in advance. Oh, yeah, sure. Yes. Yeah. The, your stomach reacts differently when, when it's under stress. And so the reactions could be, uh, yeah, all kinds of ways. Unfortunate. We'll draw a discreet veil um, over that. So, so in terms of the next section, I just wanted to uh, speak briefly about is your crossings and you've already talked about um, some of those and you did mention it earlier on about your crossing of the North Sea from England to the Netherlands as I mentioned it's probably not the most glamorous there weren't many volcanoes or palm trees at either end of, of that but where did you set off from and were you able to paddle the whole distance because I know that the England to France route because of the shipping lanes it can be difficult to get that that full run through so just tell us a bit about that that run yeah I poof, um, I can't even recall the name where I started but I um I've, it was for sure the longer route mm-hmm. um, because the, the, the normal, the channel is, is a pretty short one um, and goes to Belgium. Um, but I went up higher. Been yeah, Norfolk, really, Harwich. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not. It was above Harwich. Anyway, I started from there and then it, it's a basically a straight line um, on the same latitude to mm-hmm. Zandvoort. Right. And the the only thing I didn't expect, I, I kind of expected that wind wouldn't work out exactly like the forecast was, uh, which was the case, because it mm. started with side wind for a while, and then it became headwind. And 
um, in the end, it became a downwind, which was very fortunate, fortunate for me for the last maybe six, six, seven hours. But what I didn't expect was the fog. Right. And the fog creates all kind of problems because you don't see the shipping anymore. And I wasn't in the shipping lane yet, but still there's, there's so much shipping in that area. Uh, so I could hear the shipping mm-hmm. and because of the fog, it, it's, it's, you can hear it actually pretty well. It's, it's a, um, because in the beginning there was very little wind, so you could hear the, the engines. And there was even a point where I, when the fog was not very strong yet, it became stronger after, where I saw in the far distance um, some breaking waves. So that's weird. On, on my map, I don't see any sandbank here or things like that. And I only realized later that it was the bow of a, of a big ship creating those waves. Wow. And... So I learned pretty quick how to deal with the fog. So if I heard a, a ship coming from the same direction for a little longer than I was, um, than I liked, I just started pedaling 90 degrees to my, my course mm-hmm. until I could hear that it was actually passing one way or the other, uh, which I did like three times, I think, uh, to make sure that ship which was coming towards me was just going to miss me. Um, th- so that worked really out well, and it's it's because it's so quiet around you. Um, there's no you know there's no street noise, no there's nothing else than that ship um, th- that worked out. But and then later when it becomes busy, a lot of people ask me about this. But on the, in the shipping lane, it's not that difficult because I'm as fast as a, a sailing ship, and I, like I said, I, I've sailed before a lot, mm. and with a sailing ship. You, you always go behind the ship. You always shoot for the for the, the back of the ship. And you never try to go in front. And my speed is the same as with this, uh, as what I'm used to. So it, it's very easy to, mm. to manage that. And the only place where it was a little harder when I got closer to Holland, there's actually a, a very narrow shipping lane coming towards Rotterdam. And... Um, when I got close, there were a lot of ships, and I, I even waited for one to pass close to a, a, a buoy. And I was afraid that that boat was going to think that, you know, why there's a little guy standing or sitting on a, on a small board in the middle, because you couldn't see any land, mm. in the middle of nowhere. And I was afraid he was going to call it in to the Coast Guard, and they were going to rescue me. So I, I, I just paddled. I didn't wave. Because I was afraid if I waved, they would think that there was a, mm. a sign of distress. But I, I just tried to act like everything was normal. Later, yeah. I heard that, that ship called it in, but also said it looks like he, he is in control and he's not in distress. So that part worked out really well. Um, the only part which didn't work out during that whole thing was that it took me 12 hours longer or 13 hours longer than I expected. And I didn't have a tracker that time because it, it was not working on that part of the world mm. and my wife and friends they only thought it was going to take 24 hours so they were kind of waiting for me and in distress uh, th- not knowing what what was happening until I got there at 3 o'clock at night And but I, it was actually one of the harder I think of all the crossings and one of the um also nice ones. The best thing about the whole thing was when I arrived, it was three o'clock in the middle of the night, but there were still 
a group of like 25 friends mm. and they they were so interested in what had happened that they gave me a plate of food and I had to sit in the middle of those 25 people and explain what happened. Um, there was just a nice, nice end of that, that trip. Yeah, absolutely. I bet they were relieved to see you as well. And that comes under the category of don't try this at home, folks. So you've done other point-to-point crossings. You did one from one end of the, the Hawaiian chain of islands to the other, and that was multi-day. And you did that without obviously getting landfall on the way. You, you talked a bit about your sailing experience. Clearly, you spent a huge amount of time on the water. How do you how do you navigate when you know, particularly at night when you maybe can't see land? Do you do you use GPS for that? How do you manage your location? Yeah, you use GPS to to check your where you are. Um, not while you're paddling. No, it's not like you, you're looking at the whole time. I do. I always have a compass, so that's the only thing you look at if you if you're somewhere you don't see land, mm. um, so you know where to go through. In the middle of the night, mostly I don't paddle um, on those longer crossings to get some rest. Uh, if I had to paddle, I always try to to find a star which is close to the course I'm, I'm doing. I mean, the, the, it changes the whole time, but if you check every half an hour, an hour, you have something to focus on, and it's easier to do that than to focus on a compass uh, right in front of you and because you need a light and a light pedaling with pedaling mm. is not nice uh, because it reflects and you don't see anything around you i i, I pedal really comfortably at night when it's when it's just dark and mm. uh, you can see way more than most people think if it's if there's no headlights or nothing around you and the moon if there's moon it, there's just it's very bright actually and and um, relying on your extensive experience on the sea in terms of sailboats, do you get a kind of instinctive feeling of your environment when you're you're out there for multi-day um, paddles? Because you know the, the Polynesian tradition, people can kind of um, get a sense of where they are from the the type of chop and waves that they're experiencing. It, I guess to an extent, you've got that full awareness of your full environment when you're out there on the water. Yes, you, you get very used to the water pretty quick. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty quick seasick, so when I sit down and make food or watch the GPS, I, I get seasick, seasick easily. And most of those crossings, the first one or two days I was. And, but when you pedal, it's, it's just okay. Mm. And that gets away. The weird thing is when you, you spend a, enough time on a board, uh, once you hit land... Um, you, you got what you call sea it sea lag, yeah. And it's I, you know, I've sailed a lot, but I never experienced it like this. It, it's really the like the, the the worst one was when I got to Kauai after the five days, and I couldn't walk straight. I I I've never been drunk in my life, but I'm pretty sure that's what it feels like. You try, you think you're gonna put your next foot forward, yeah, and it, you have to just sidestep the whole time. And my wife and daughter had to actually help me walk in a straight line the first first couple of hours just moving on to um adventure and some of the epic trips you've been out on um because you've been on quite a fair few of those some incredible locations and uh, we recorded a chat a while ago with franz Orsi just um after he had sort of returned as part of the world sup challenge and we were talking about nepal 
And I know that you've ranked that as one of your favourite places to stand up paddleboard. Could you just tell us about your journey there and what made it so special? Yeah, I've, I've, although I'm, I'm such a water person, I really enjoy being in the mountains too. And I did some some small tracks and climbed the Mont Blanc and things like that. And so I, I, I always wanted to go to Nepal because that's where climbers go. And as soon as you land there, you get this feeling that this is a climber place where people are really nice and they, they are in tune with the, with nature. Um, they, they, they live for the mountains. They live in the mountains, just like, uh, Pacific Islanders live in the sea and for the sea. Um, so I like that part and you, you feel it right away when you get there. Um, Pedaling is not so easy because there, you can only pedal on a few lakes and the rest is all rivers and most of the rivers are too too wild to pedal on. Mm-hmm. And so it's more of the feeling you get there when you can pedal on those few places than, and the, 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 the sights and the, the, the things you see around you, then there's actually a whole lot to pedal there. Uh, that's not the main reason why I like it so much, but it, it's just a... Yeah, it's a magical Incredible place. experience. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then, you know, you've got places like uh, Zambia. So the, the Zambezi, are, you know, I mean, we talked about animals um, earlier on. That's That gives you a whole load of other things to, to manage there, I guess. A, a guide is essential in, in that situation. Yeah, especially that time we, we had a guide and uh, I was very happy we had one because there's – you cannot imagine how many animals there are on that, that river. They, they, we basically saw a pot of hippos um, all the time. You, you pedal from one pot to the next pot, and you take your board, and they hear that somehow underwater, and they pop up their head and look where this noise is coming from. And then you saw the ne- next pot, or you saw the elephants or crocodiles. There were, there were so many animals. Um, mm. So there was, it. yes, um, if you're not familiar with a place it's good to have somebody guiding you and that that we were very unfamiliar with the wildlife on a river like that and so he, he taught us a lot and it was very interesting and and it's 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 i think it's also quite a dangerous place if you just go there because of the hippos and the crocodiles they're, they're both dangerous animals to mm. um, to human beings and um, Greenland, just talk to me ab- about that, because that, again, was a whole different experience. And I guess your experience in Greenland kind of talks it into all of the sort of starboard-type environmental um, actions that are happening at the moment. But j- just tell us a bit about that Greenland adventure. Yes. Um, originally, I wanted to cross from Canada to Greenland. But we, the closer we got, the more it became apparent that it was very dangerous to do that. Uh, mostly because of the, mm. the cold water. It would mean that I would spend two to four days uh, at sea to do that uh, in water temperatures of, of around zero, and which is fine if you don't fall in. But uh, the, 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 the most important thing why I decided not to do this is all the, the storms you get there. It was so unpredictable, um, and the weather forecast every two days changed completely to what was forecasted so I, it, it just looked like an impossible task to go with a forecast and not have any storms and a storm on a on a pedal board where you're so exposed 
to all the elements is just dangerous. And I found out later that actually were two kayakers who tried and then both died, who did that crossing. Um, so I decided not to do that, um, which was a difficult decision because, you know, I told everybody I was going to do it. Mm-hmm. I told the sponsors, it is this going to happen. And um, although there's no other pressure, that still puts some kind of pressure on you. And But I, yeah, even, even Sven called me and said, I have a bad feeling about this. Uh, Sven, the owner of Starboard. And so all together, I decided not to do it and just fly over. But still, it was an incredible experience just because mm-hmm. there's so little people there. That it's so much about nature and nothing else, and the 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 icebergs and just the purity. This, yeah, no no plastics, no. It's it's just just nature there, and it's it's so harsh for most people that you can see it. It's a, it's not an easy life for them to live there, um, and the people who do they they, yeah. It's it's hard to imagine for people in Europe, in a normal house with heating and everything, mm. um, how life in a place like that is. Uh, so it was an incredible experience and, and a very beautiful one too. I used to ask uh, my guests a question and I've kind of retired it. Um, used to ask it mostly during lockdown when everyone was sort of confined to their homes and so on around bucket list fantasy locations to paddle. And I think you probably uh, paddled in um, huge variety of of different locations is there anywhere that you still want to go or um, is there anywhere that you would recommend for people's bucket list locations to paddle and obviously people have different reasons for paddling some are into surf and exploration and so on but what are your highlights in terms of the locations that you've been to and what would you recommend for for touring and exploration i really would like to go to antarctica but i know it's very difficult to get there and it, it's uh, it's very expensive to get there. So it's just uh, in, in places where it's still on the bucket list and I'm not sure if it will ever happen. Um, there's plenty of other places which are very, very nice. Um, but it, it's uh, what I like about stand-up pedalboard that, and I always try to inspire other people to do the same. It doesn't matter if you, you don't have to go to Greenland or Zambia. Uh, if you live in Europe, there's small rivers in France or in England and you, you get the same feeling if you pedal there than when you pedal in, in Greenland. It's maybe not the same view, but even when I pedaled in, in, in Scotland, um, the, the great Glen race there, it, it's, it's beautiful. And it's, um, mm. and you have the feeling that the whole place to yourself because that not many people do that. And there's so many rivers and lakes on um in europe or in the us or in in south america like that that it's very easy even close by home to do things like that and that's where that's where we kind of got to on that question because what lockdown did is it focused people on their own local waters and rather than going wide in a variety of different places it was all about going deep in the area that you paddle and to really understand um, your area rather than just looking for for, for new opportunities but uh, you've paddled in some some spectacular locations um I, I do want to just keep you and ask you a couple of questions about starball but before i do 
Um, obviously, Anne-Marie Teichmann, um, you know, brought into existence the 11 cities race. Um, are there any locations that you've come about which you think, you know, would be really good for a, a long adventure race over a number of days? Are there any, you know, like the Mississippi or, or, or some sort of expanse where you, you think um, that would be excellent for a multi-stage adventure? Yeah, I said in France, I think that the Loire, they do something like that. And that's, the, I've never been to that race because the timing was always wrong. But I've always inspired to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a nice, I think it's a nice place to do a race like that. In Australia, there's a few places where they do things like this. It, it would be nice to do it. There, there's place in the in the Caribbean where mm-hmm. you can actually do things like this. And it, it, the only problem is with races like that. If it's if it's in in the ocean, that it's harder to control the safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so a, a river anywhere is always the best option. Good stuff. So just moving on, how did you start getting involved uh, with Starboard? Because obviously you and Sven both share a windsurfing background. Is that where you sort of started to get that, that connection? I know you, you uh, had that um, early prototype that you took around the, the world for three years, but how, how do you start that relationship? Yeah, I knew Sven already from windsurfing. I used to test for the, the German windsurf magazine. Mm-hmm. And you know Germans, they're very serious about their testing and things like that. So we wait, we spent eight weeks or six weeks in South Africa um, trying out all the different sails and and trying to find the small nuances between the sails, and spending a lot of time and money on those testing days. And in the beginning of those tests, um, all the manufacturers always came there, and so I I met Sven, and later. When I started pedaling and I did a few races and I had that uh, one board, um, I did pretty well in some race in Maui. And I, I just happened to be at a dinner with Connor and the, his parents and Sven was there. He, when he go, comes somewhere, he, he comes for a day. So I, I was just super lucky that I was there at that moment. And at the dinner table... I didn't know what the conversation was about, but suddenly uh, Keith, the dad of Connor, said, well, Sven, if you have to sponsor one person, you have to sponsor him because he's doing so well in the races. And he was just saying only nice things about me. And just there and then Sven said, okay, um, what do you need? And so when I, he gave me basically some, some gear and I saw it, um, if he gives me that opportunity, I'm just going to race super hard in the few races I can prove it in. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them uh, was the a race in France, and one was in um, it was Eleven City. And yeah, a couple months later, or half a year later, uh, I I signed a contract uh, with an even better sponsorship deal. So it yeah, if you get an opportunity, you have to jump on it, and it it. Yeah, you can make it work if it's yeah. And it was early days, so it's it's it, there were opportunities there. And obviously, you spent quite a lot of time traveling the world and spending lots of time on the water there. But one of the things that sort of stuck out for for me in terms of Starboard as a brand is their leadership in terms of um, the environmental protections and innovation. And it's not just about their own sort of environmental standards, which obviously they've done huge amounts of work 
on, but it's also extending that and challenging the rest of the industry. Um, I guess that would be a, an element of affinity that you have with the brand as well. Yes, I have, I have huge respect for, for Sven in that part because he's not only very involved in the brand, and and I mean he's very involved in the brand. He, he I go there, I used to go there the, the last couple of years during COVID. I haven't been, but normally a couple of weeks a year. And when you're there, you can see Sven is only running around all the departments and just being so involved with anything uh, the whole day, every day, um, and night and and i don't know many people who are that engaged with their brand but he spends even more time on environmental projects and sometimes for or mostly for his brand but sometimes also just for the common good and he goes to to uh, conferences and try to influence uh presidents and ministers and un conferences and things like that just to get people to move and in the right direction. And the amount of work he does there is just incredible. And the amount of effect he has on the people around him is is also immense. I, it, not only the people work around him directly in Thailand, um, because they, they go out every week on Friday for the last couple of hours of the day and, and clean up streets or mm. beaches. And... But also the things he demands from team riders, which start to, you know, they, they start to think like him and believe like him. And so it, it's like a, it's, it's like a snowball effect. And I think he has way more influence on um, environment than most people give him credit for. Although he's known for it, it it's, it's amazing how much he does. And um, certainly sets the standard for other brands, and you definitely see them changing the way that they're operating based on you know, Starboard's actions there. J- just one final question uh, for you, Bart. Um, I know you're the uh, the team manager for the Dream Team at Starboard, and I've always been curious to find out what that entails because I'm, I'm guessing people like Michael Booth don't need motivational talks or anything like that. They've got you know, plenty of enthusiasm about them anyway. What, what's your role there? No, it's true that most most people in in Dream Team they they already made it and they um, they're professional enough that they don't need the motivational speech. Um, although some encouragement always helps a little bit, but it's it's actually the biggest part is organizing boards in the right places mm-hmm. and uh, making uh, sure that the team for next year is is the right team. Finding other riders, um, deciding who gets what. Uh, Sven has a huge influence on that part, of course, and and I I gather information and. Um, try to support it's basically a supporting role for Sven mm-hmm. and for riders mm-hmm. um, and it's not like a manager of of um, if you have a tennis player who who, who just looks after the interest of, uh, of a certain person mm-hmm. it, it's mostly making sure that the riders go to the right places and have the right gear and try to divide our you know the the, the, the power we have in, in riders try to divide it in different areas so they don't all could go to one race uh, but divide it over certain races 
and so we can show our efforts. Absolutely. And I did promise that was the last question, but here's another one. Um, APP are in London for um, our race in August. Really looking forward to that. Who's, what's your form guide for athletes at the moment? I know it's difficult because no one's been racing that much, but we've had the Euro Tour recently and other competitions. Who are the ones to watch, do you think, in that in that race? Um, well, in, in women, I, I think one person is really on form. This is uh, Esperanza. Uh, she's winning all. She's been winning all the Euro Tour races. Uh, she's been in, and and I say she's in in a really good form because she wins them not just by winning them, but she's always in the lead for a couple minutes, mm. uh, which you don't see so much anymore in stand up paddling. Uh, so you can see she's in another, in another league, I think, at the moment, and. APP is a little different because it's it's uh, the long distance um, is one race, but the, the sprint is another and uh, is is a very different race. So we'll see. I'm not. I don't have a clue who will do really good well there. And in the man, in the sprints, I still think that Connor is is one of the best. And in the long distance, uh, Nuik and Michael, they're both very good, and it's it's. Uh, it's not really clear to me which is the stronger one. It depends on the race, I think. And but we're in a, in a very luxurious uh, uh, space with so many good riders at the moment. And but there's yeah no there's there's some other riders from other teams like Titouan. He's 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 very consistently good through the years. Mm. And there's some new um, younger riders coming up suddenly which is is also very nice to see um so it, it's an interesting time i think now after covid is the first time that people are really going to meet and we're going to really see like who came out of covid on top and we're going to see a few new riders we haven't heard of before mm. which are going to be established names by next year and uh, i'm personally crossing my finger for some of those young uk athletes who are who are coming up as well but I didn't tell you this up front, but way back in 2015, when we started the podcast, you were at the very top of our initial dream team of interview guests. So it's been great to speak to you today. I can hang up my microphone comfortably now. Uh, but uh, congratulations for everything you've achieved so far. And a huge thank you on behalf of all of those who you've inspired. Take care and hopefully we can catch up on the water sometime. I'm, I'm thinking probably not the Yukon 1000, probably maybe in Maui or something like that. Good, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I, I must say you've done a tremendous amount of um, background work um, with all the questions you had. So um, thank you for a, a well-prepared interview and uh, hope to meet you again also somewhere, Maui. <laughs> Take care.